Okay, well, this morning, as is usually the case, towards the end of August, we usually spend two or three weeks answering your Bible questions, and we are going to be doing that this morning. And I think uh, sometimes I, uh, I've, when I'm answering questions, I think, well, I just kind of preached on this, didn't I? And, um, and usually it was longer ago than I thought, but... Uh, like always, more questions are submitted than I can answer. And like always, a bunch of people realize after the deadline, they would like to ask a question. And um, they do not get through the Ruth Fish firewall, I'm afraid. And so they stay on the other side. However, you can go to our website. There's a little box in the corner of our website. says Google search. If you put your question in there, it'll just search our website and bring up all kinds of sermons and Bible studies and Calvary review articles that often will answer whatever it is you're looking for. So I'd encourage you to make use of that. Also, um, if you can always just open your Bible and study it for yourself. That's a good thing. That's a, the best place to start um, to actually look up a bunch of verses on a certain thing and write down what you learn from each verse in its context and then try to synthesize it. And then if you still don't understand it, then you can attack one of the pastors or elders and put them on the spot. Now, uh, this, uh, there's a whole barrage of questions on the sovereignty of God and man's will, which are the most frequently asked questions every year. And a lot of times I just kind of ignore them um, for a while because I think, well, I just dealt with it. Uh, like you can, you probably all remember the question and answer sermon that I preached in 2002. Um, if you go online to 811 O two or eight nine o five. If you don't remember the O two one, uh, you'll find some questions that address this. Also, uh, how many were here for the Psalm one forty five attributes of God series? Just raise your hand. I just want to kind of see this. Yeah, see, not too many. Um, how many people were here for the nine part series on the sovereignty of God and salvation? That was in two thousand seven. Yeah, see, there's a lot of people who weren't here, and I just think, well, man, I just got through preaching that four years ago or whatever, and uh, you should know these things. But anyways, we will um, address them. And I just want to say this. I had uh, one couple come up after the service, and they kind of looked like, you know, we've never heard this. Um, and, uh, and they had all these questions, and of course... I would love to just sit down and explain it in great detail. But that's why I preached nine sermons on it. So if what I give you this morning is not satisfactory, just call the office or email the office and say, I need more ammo. And, uh, and then we'll give you the links and give you the information you need. So you really need to study these things in more detail than I can give you. I am just going to answer the questions, but I can't go hammering out. I'm tempted to like preach a whole sermon and every little fragment of every question asked. But of course, I can't do that. Now, I am going to answer about 28 different questions this morning. And, and since most of them are aligned along the same subject, we're going to get a lot of them in there. But uh, just so you know, if you're, if you're feeling like, well, that wasn't a good enough answer, you can get better answers. So I'm just admitting it up front. Okay, let's begin by saying this. God is absolutely sovereign, as sovereign as sovereign can be, and men are responsible for their actions. That's what the scriptures teach. Not one, not the other but both and. Now, the first question is, 
can you help clarify how we reconcile God's sovereignty over our sin and man's moral responsibility? How could we be responsible for something we can't help but do? That is sin. Did Adam and Eve have a free will to sin or not to sin? Now, there's three questions here. Now, this is like a tricky thing people do. They go, I have a question, and they kind of sneak in uh, multiple ones. So let's answer these. Uh, it did kind of make me laugh because I just got through reading not too long ago a, a, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon called Jacob and Esau. Of course, it's based on that text in Romans nine thirteen, where Paul is talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And uh, the Lord says, Jacob, I loved and Esau, I hated. And so uh, Paul quotes that when he's discussing the sovereignty of God in salvation. And Spurgeon writes concerning that, there is no language that I can possibly conceive that could more forcibly express this idea, supposing it would be the mind of the Holy Spirit, that the glory should be to God for saving sinners and the blame should be laid at men's door when they perish in hell. God saves men by grace and if men perish, they perish by their own fault. How, says someone, do you reconcile these two doctrines? My dear brethren, I never reconcile two friends. Never. These two doctrines are friends with one another, for they are both in God's word, and I shall not attempt to reconcile them. If you show me that they're enemies, then I will reconcile them. But, says one, there is a great deal of difficulty about them. Will you tell me what truth there is that has no difficulty about it? But, says he, I do not see it. Why I do not ask you to see it. I ask you to believe it. There are many things in God's word that are difficult that I cannot see. But there they are. And I believe them. I cannot see how God can be omnipotent and men be free. But it is so. And I believe it. Well, says one, I just can't understand it. My answer is I'm bound to make it as plain as I can. But if you have not any understanding, I I cannot give it to you. And there I must leave it. But then again, it is not a matter of understanding. It is a matter of faith, end quote. There comes a time that no matter how hard I try and explain things to some people, they just can't understand it. Well, I can't give you that. All What matters is, is that you see it in the pages of Scripture and you believe it. So as Spurgeon rightly pointed out, there the doctrine of man's God's sovereignty and salvation and men's will does not need reconciled because they are not at odds with one another. And it is very clear when you read in the scriptures that, that God is sovereign. I mean, the, you know, the scriptures have so many statements about God's sovereignty. You know, he, he sits above the vaults of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. I mean, it talks about him existed. Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah says he declares the end from the beginning. You know, Paul says in Ephesians, he works all things after the counsel of his will. I mean, there's so many statements like that. And there's also an equal number of statements about men being responsible, commands given to men and consequences consequences for them not obeying. They are responsible. They have to obey. If they don't, they suffer the consequences. They're clear. Both are taught. And if you can't unravel the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, just believe it's true. God is sovereign and men are responsible. And don't pitch one or the other because you can't um, seem to make them fit together. They fit together, but a lot of men just can't quite understand it. So, having said that, 
Question 1A, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility don't need reconciled. 1B, how can we be responsible for something that we can't help but do? I would encourage you to listen to the question and answer sermon for August 17th, 2003, where I answer the same question, but in more detail. That basically is this. Our responsibility to obey is not nullified because God is sovereign. God's sovereignty works with our responsibility. It doesn't override it or get rid of it. You know, if a drug addict says, I just can't stop doing drugs, that doesn't mean he's not responsible anymore. He could seek help, but he won't. And so sinners, though they be enslaved to sin, can still seek God out for help. And his grace is sufficient, but many won't. They just won't. Now, it's true also that unbelievers just can't please God. You know, when he says, well, how can you help but do something? I mean, if, if unbelievers can't help but sin, then, then how can they be responsible? Well, this is why. Because God says don't do something or do something, and then they, they rebel against it, and they're responsible. You say, well, what if they can't help it? Well, that doesn't erase their responsibility. Responsibility isn't erased because you're compulsive, because you're committed to the wrong thing, because you're blinded from the truth. What you need to understand is everything we do before coming to Christ is sin. A lot of people don't think that way. You know, they see, oh, this person's a good person. Well, in relationship to maybe other people in society, yeah, they may be good. But compared to God, they're not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, so you can have a believer help an old lady across the road and an unbeliever help an old lady across the road. And the believer can do it for the glory of God and please God and the, an unbeliever not. Why? Because before you come to know Christ and you have his blood applied to you, before you are reconciled to God, justified before God, before you are friends with God, everything you do is an offense to him. Why? Because you're rejecting Jesus. I'm not going to accept Christ. I'm not going to have him be Lord of my life. I don't want him telling me what to do. I'm not going to repent of my sins. I'm not going to believe the gospel. But can I do some things that please you? No. Why? Because you're at enmity with me, the scriptures say. You're, you're at war with God. So until a person gets reconciled to God, nothing they do pleases him. And this is confusing because a lot of unbelievers look at some other unbelievers and say, I know certain unbelievers who do more good things than believers do. Only good in the eyes of society, but not in the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of God. So, our God's, God's sovereignty does not nullify our responsibility. We still have to obey. And 1C, did Adam and Eve have free will to sin or not sin? And the answer is yes, before the fall. Before the fall, Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature, and so they were truly free to either obey or not obey. And they chose to disobey. And so they had a free will. After that, they were cursed and became enslaved to sin and then needed God and his saving grace to help them obey in a way that gave God glory. If you want more on that, you can see the question and answer sermon on August 19th, 8-1907. Second question. If God knew we would sin and that some would go to hell, why did he still create us in the first place? 
And the answer is to get glory for himself. God will glorify himself in the salvation of sinners by grace and the condemnation of sinners by justice. That's why. Seek, well, that seems just and gracious is what it is. I know what you're thinking. It's what everybody thinks. Well, then why did he save me? I don't know, but you better be thankful and you better serve him because he's worthy. So why doesn't he save my uncle so-and-so? Well, he might. Or why didn't he save so-and-so who perished in their sins? They deserve to perish in their sins. Why doesn't he save anybody? Well, that's another question. We're getting there. So God does it to get glory for himself. You need to realize that, that, that God does everything to get glory for himself. And he doesn't owe anybody salvation. Salvation is by grace, undeserved favor. Nobody deserves to be saved. No one even deserves a chance to be saved. Salvation is all by grace and grace is undeserved, right? So you can't say, but I deserve or so-and-so deserves or it's not fair because if everybody got what was fair, we would end up in hell. So you don't want fair. And so the answer to the question is, is God created people so he could glorify himself and put his attributes on display. Do you realize that there are certain attributes of God we could never know if there wasn't some sin in the world? Grace, mercy, patience, long-suffering, justice, wrath. Those are attributes of God which can only be seen in the context of sin. If we didn't know anything about sin, we wouldn't be able to know those things. So God allowed certain things to get more glory for himself. Third, can we resist the call of God to salvation? John MacArthur says in his study Bible, those who perish go to hell They go because they are depraved and worthy only of hell and have rejected the only remedy, Jesus Christ. My question is, if God chooses whom he reveals himself to, then for those who reject him, what was there to reject if he didn't call them? Why doesn't he make his call irresistible to everyone? Where does man's free will come into play? Well, there's six questions here. (laughs) 3A. First, we can't resist the call of God to salvation. God's grace is irresistible. And when you hear that term, irresistible, what that means is when God sets his sights on a sinner to save them, they will be saved. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he overrides their will or they reluctantly get saved, kicking and dragging, and they sit in church for the rest of their time, and I wish I wasn't here. You know, that's not how it is. Grace opens their eyes to the truth so they think, oh, Wow, Jesus is the Savior. I am a sinner. I do need him. And they willingly believe, but it's not like, well, okay. That's not how it is, okay? So God's grace is irresistible. Let me just give you a couple texts. One of my favorites is in John chapter 6. There's actually multiple verses here. I'm just going to read two to you. John 6 verse 39. Listen to this carefully. This is the will of him who sent me, Jesus speaking, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, the father sends me to earth. Gives me people to say, save, I save them and raise, res, resurrect them on the last day. He goes on to say in verse 44 and again in verse 65, no one can come to me unless 
the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, when you read this section, you realize you can't come to the father except through the son. You can't come to the son unless the father draws you. If the father draws you to the son, you will come, you will be saved, you will be resurrected, and you will not be lost. That is pretty irresistible. I mean, that is about as irresistible as you can get. Another great text is in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, where Paul speaks of God's salvation. And listen to what he says. And notice who's doing everything in these verses. Listen. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And he goes on in verse 30 to say, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see man in there? No, they're just the objects of what God is doing. God is the only one doing anything. God is sovereign in salvation and saving grace is irresistible. 3B, John MacArthur says in the study Bible that men perish because they reject Jesus Christ. Well, that's true, but God said it first. John 3:18, for instance, he who believes in him is not judged because he does not uh, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know, Second uh, Thessalonians, you know, talks about those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They reject it. They willingly reject it. You know, John 3.36, he who believes in the Son is eternal life. He who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So yes, it is by rejecting. You never see anywhere in the Bible that, well, they perish because God didn't choose them. Now, everybody perishes because they reject and because they sin against God. Never because they're not chosen. 3C, if God chooses who he reveals himself to. You can just take the if out of there. He does. 3D, since God chooses, we'll just put sense now. Since God chooses whom he will reveal himself to, then for those who reject him, what was there to reject if he didn't call them? Christ, the gospel, the lordship of Christ, God's sovereignty over their life, turning from their sin to believe in the gospel. That's what they reject. Again, because God saves people by grace, that doesn't mean people don't willfully reject. They just always reject. That's why Paul says in Romans 3 verse 11, there are none who seek after God. If God's grace is taken out of the picture, there are none who seek after God. Universally, men, Paul says, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He says that which is known about God is evident within them. God put it in them. He says it can be seen through creation. What has been made that God exists. They have the external display. I mean, go outside. What do you think? It just came from nothing? Most people believe that. Take a whole bunch of nothing and wait long enough and you get everything. I mean, come on. That's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. I mean, try it sometimes. Just open up a savings account. Don't put anything in it. Just wait. See, see what, how long it takes to fill up. It never happens. 
So obviously, it came from somewhere. When you look at creation and see the design and see the complexity of it, you know that there is a God, that he is powerful, that he is intelligent, that he is a God of beauty and a God of design. And so when you look at that, it can be seen through creation what has been made, that God exists and the law of God is written in their hearts and they have a conscience accusing or else defending them and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and worship a stone or a stick or themselves or the sun, or something else, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So, God chooses sinners to salvation, but it does not nullify their responsibility to believe and obey. People do not perish because they don't have a choice. It's because, uh, or because they are not the elect. They have a choice, but always choose wrong. The Bible never says they perish because they weren't chosen. Let's say I give you a pair of hand pruners and I just say, well, what I want you to do is just take these hand pruners and just cut your fingers off right at the first knuckle. And you say what? No. Okay. Um, No. Just like anyone else would say no. I said, well, hey, why not? You say, but that would be dumb. I like my fingers. It would hurt. You know, that's not what pruners are for. And on and on. And you know what? You would be right. And if I were to go to 10,000 people and say, hey, why don't you nip off the end of the finger? They'd say no. And they would be right. But when it comes to the gospel, men don't come to Jesus. Remember John three nineteen? They do not come to the light because they love their sin. And they're afraid that their deeds would be exposed. That's why Paul says there's none who seek after God. They won't come. They won't come. They won't come. And that's why if God didn't intervene and save people by his grace, grant them repentance, draw them to himself, open their eyes by the work of the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't be saved because they won't come. They will not to come. So that's why God saves people by grace. If he waited around for men to seek him, no one would seek him, Paul says. 3E, why doesn't God just make his call irresistible to everyone? I don't know. My question is, why did he make his call irresistible to anyone? Why did he save you? Think about that. You know, you got 7 billion people in the world. Why you? You extra special? Extra good, extra whatever. I mean, you look at your life and say, well, um, no. That is the marvel. The marvel is not why doesn't he save any everyone, but why does he save anyone? Why would he take a certain group of unworthy sinners who are enemies of his and save them by grace? That is the marvel. That really is very difficult to, you just can't answer. You can't answer. However, Paul does answer the very question in Romans 9 when he discusses the sovereignty of God and salvation. When he talks about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He says this in verse 11. Here's the answer. See if you can hear the answer here. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. Did you see that? Three things. Why does God choose some and not others? Because it's his purpose, because it's his choice, and because it's his call. And it has nothing to do for the man who wills 
or the man who runs, but the God who has mercy. He even makes a, like a more forceful statement in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he, has, he desires and hardens whom he desires. Really? Yeah, we've been learning that from Luke, right? About how God keeps the truth from some, some and gives it to the others. And then Paul knows what's going to happen. He knows this is going to happen because it always happens. And it's happening right now in some of your minds. You're saying, well, then why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And implied, of course, in that question is God's saving grace is irresistible. And if he wanted to, he could save any, everybody. On the contrary, he says, who are you, a man who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make one from the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And the implied answer is, of course, you know, I, I, you have a piece of clay. It's your clay. You bought it. It's yours to do what you want. You know, you can make an ashtray. You can make a coffee cup. And what if the clay could talk and say, hey, why did you make me an ashtray? Or why did you make me a coffee cup? What do you do, man? You <laughs> Now you're a coaster. <laughs> See, you can, you have a right. Why? It's your clay. Well, we are nothing but dust. God created us from the dust of the earth. And he has a right to do with what he wants. And that's why Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You are just a proud lump of dust. And so there is a message to all men. We're going to get to that in a minute. And there is a message to believers. And that message is given to them by God and they need to heed it. 3F, where does man's free will come into play? Well, the free will of man really doesn't come into play because it's not free. The Bible speaks of the will of man, but not the free will of man. It doesn't even speak necessarily of the free will of God because there are even certain things God can't do. He can't lie. He can't break his word or his promise. He can't contradict his nature, can't make a rock so big he can't move it. Okay, which all the people think is very tricky because they don't realize God doesn't act contrary to his nature. Adam and Eve, before the fall, uh, were not absolutely free either. They couldn't change themselves into a fish or a bird or, you know, a rock. You know, you can only, you only have freedoms that are granted to you. And so when God creates us, he grants us certain freedoms. And when you fall into sin and you are a sinner, you have certain freedoms given to you. An unbeliever, you know, can go to this store or that or take this road or that or get this car or that. But everything they do is in the realm of sin, that which does not please God. It isn't until they come to faith in Jesus Christ are reconciled to God and justified by the work of Christ that they can now begin to please God. But still, even as a believer, you can still not please God. And so... Men, when you speak of their free will, just let it know, let you know that uh, it is not absolutely free. Even like God's will is not absolutely free because he can't contradict his nature. But there are a couple things when you look in the scriptures that you can't do and you can't please God. Romans makes this eight, Romans eight makes this clear in verses five through eight. Speaking of unbelievers, he describes them as in the flesh. Now, notice this: we're going to say you can't please God if you're an unbeliever ever, ever. 
And here's what Paul says. For those who are according to the flesh, this is the unbeliever, set the minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set in the flesh is death, but the mind set in the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set in the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, that's a bummer. You know, if you want to please God, you can't until you get right with God. And the only way you can get right with God is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, in order to get right with God, believe the gospel, you have to be able to understand the word of God, right? The problem is 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, Paul's speaking of how the Holy Spirit illumines believers to understand in a experiential way the word of God says of unbelievers, he calls them the natural man, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The Greek literally reads, they do not have the dunamis, the power within themselves to gnosko, to experience the truth. They don't have it. They can't make it come alive in their life. That's why sometimes, and you I'm sure you've experienced this. You know, you may be super excited, man. Look at what this says. And you talk to an unbeliever about it, and they kind of look at you like, mm. Or maybe you realize that before you were a believer, you would read the Bible, and it just seemed like this huge, archaic book full of nonsense. And you read it and thought, yeah, okay, it's a story. And yeah, okay, okay. And then once you come to Christ, you read the Bible, and what happens? change it's like man this is good this is it's, it's like it's living active and sharper than any two-edged sword i mean it's now all of a sudden it comes alive in your life it's like this is so great why because before you didn't know christ you didn't have the holy spirit so you could not experiential understand the things of god but now that you know christ you have the holy spirit who helps you understand and experience in a life-changing way god's truth Secondly, not only can men can't please God and they can't understand the word of God, they can't save themselves. They can't atone for their sins. They can't justify themselves before God in a way that pleases God, although they try. So when you talk about men being free, can't please God, can't save yourself, can't understand the scriptures, which help you get saved. Which means God would have to sovereignly intervene by his grace in order for anyone to be saved. And that is exactly what he does for. This question is about Matthew twenty two fourteen. Do you remember, you remember the, the parable Jesus gave about the wedding and the people who came didn't come. So he sends out to the highway and byway and gets people to come and they get people to come. And then the master is walking through the crowd of people and he sees this guy. With no wedding clothes on, he says, friend, how is it that you came in here with no wedding clothes? And he was speechless. And then they pitch him outside. And then he ends the parable with many are called and few are chosen. Now, um, that verse describes two things. Many are called is a reference to the, what is called the universal call of the gospel. That there is a light, like John says in John 1, which, when coming into the world, enlightens every man. That, that, that the gospel is to be shared with all the nations, as the Great Commission says. 
That God commands all men everywhere to repent, as Acts 17, 30 and 31 says. There is a universal call to everyone to the gospel. And then there is a choosing of certain people. So 4B, yes, uh, when it says many are called and few are chosen, the, the, those do refer universally to everybody. And 4B, can you be called generally or universally speaking and still get into heaven and not be chosen? No. Why? Because if you aren't chosen, you won't believe. You just won't. No one seeks God apart from his grace. They just won't do it. They don't want to do it. They're like all those people you've shared the gospel with who look at you like, you are crazy. That's because God's grace isn't there. You know, why is it that sometimes when you share the gospel with somebody, they look at you like, I've got cancer and you've got the cure. You know, why, why, why do they look at you with intensity, sometimes weeping? They listen to your every word and they ask a million questions and they won't let you go. And Can, can we talk some more? And the other person looks at you like, oh, man, that is such a joke. Why is that? Because that first person, God's grace is working. The second person, it's not. And so if God's grace is absent, everybody rejects the truth. They willfully reject the truth. It's not that they don't have a choice. They have a choice, but they reject the truth. So for C... If you aren't one of the chosen, but respond to the general call, does that make you one of the chosen? No, because you would never respond. I mean, the Bible is clear that those who are chosen respond. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel. And it says this, listen to this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. I mean, that is one of those Selah verses. Pause and meditate, isn't it? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's why God intervenes by grace. Why did Christ have to die? Why can't we just gain approval by our faith like men of old? And the answer is we do gain approval like men of old. And Christ did have to die. God is just and must punish every sin. We are all sinners. Therefore, if someone is to be saved, they need perfect atonement for their sin. The only way you can be a saved is to have somebody perfect die in your place as a substitute. And you then take their righteousness and they take your punishment. And so all those people in the Old Testament, they were saved just like all the people in the New Testament. We're all saved by faith alone. They looked ahead to the coming Messiah we look back to the Messiah who already came. But either way, Christ had to die in a point of time. So we all are justified by faith like the men of old. Christ had to die to make atonement for sin. A perfect human for a sinner. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God, the scripture said. Six, when men in the Bible say repent and believe, that is assuming that we have a choice to obey or not. True. But how can we believe the gospel and obey God unless he first chooses and saves us? We've already answered that. Should people pray, God, please choose me? No. 
God uses men to call others to repent and believe for each individual. Is it kind of all just happening in God's time frame? I'm not quite sure about that last phrase, but I think it just, uh, let me just answer. Um, uh, God needs to save us by his grace, choose, choose us before the foundation of the world and save us by his grace if we're going to please him. Nobody pleases God and is saved apart from God's electing grace. Secondly, should people pray, God, please choose me? No. God does choose people before the foundation of the world. It's already happened. If, if you can figure out on your calendar when that was. Um, the foundation of the world has already been laid. Therefore, all those people have been chosen. Who and how many people has God chosen? The Bible doesn't say. It just says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to adoption as sons. You say, well, then what should people pray? People should pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I am a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again the third day. I know he did that because I can't save myself. Help me, help my unbelief. Rescue me because I can't save myself. Something like that works. And uh, God's not going to say, well, I'm not going to save you. Now, if you prayed that and you were earnest in it, God would save you. And you would discover after believing that it was his grace that enabled you to pray that prayer. And if you wouldn't pray that prayer, then God would blame you for it because you won't do it. 6D, God uses men to call each individual to repent and believe. This is all happening. Is this all happening in God's time? Yes, everything happens in God's time because he holds all time is in his being. In him, we live and move and have our being. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 15 talks about how God has chosen to use the foolishness of the gospel preached. The main way God saves people is he has somebody share the gospel with somebody else. That's how it usually works. Now, people get saved other ways, like reading the Bible. That's how I came to Christ. Somebody gave me a Bible, started reading it, and I came to Christ. Um, Sometimes it's a gospel track. Sometimes it's a fragment of a verse. So there's different ways apart from one person proclaiming the truth to another. But the means God prescribes, the normal means is the foolishness. Paul calls it foolish because it seems kind of a weird thing that you would just tell somebody about the gospel and they would get saved. But that's how people usually get saved. And that's what he talks about in Romans 10, right? How will they, they hear unless they have a preacher and how they will, will they preach unless they were sent? And so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so there is a need to send out missionaries and to preach, not because God isn't sovereign, but because in his sovereignty, he chooses that means to bring people to Christ. Somebody came up after the service and said, well, why pray if God knows who he's going to save? And I said, well, do we pray because we save people? I mean, think about it. Why pray? I mean, why would you pray? Well, the only reason we pray is because God is sovereign, right? When we pray, we're asking God to sovereignly save somebody. That's why we pray. We don't pray because he isn't sovereign and he needs our help. We pray because he is sovereign. And he tells us to pray because prayer is one of the things he uses to get glory for himself in the process of bringing sinners to Christ. See, whenever God is sovereign, people tend to have this idea that it's either all sovereignty or all man. When it's not, it's both. It's God's sovereignty working concurrently with men and their responsibility. 
That when he said, he, God decides that he's going to send Christ to earth. Well, how does it, what does he use to do that? Well, he uses a virgin, right? Mary, parents, eating food so he could grow up. He has him live in the world, right? Then he's arrested, but he's arrested when he's betrayed by who? By Judas. And who chose Judas? He did. And he knew who he was. And then he is tried and he is crucified. And then what does Peter say in Acts? This Jesus whom you crucified by the predetermined plan of God. Well, it's almost like God had it planned. He did. It's almost like it's all of God's doing. It was. But it's also like men are responsible. They are. Well, which one's right? Both. 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 And you're thinking, oh, my brain's hurting. It's going to hurt worse. (laughs) So. But embedded in this last question, which is similar to the first one, is a really important thing that you really need to get a grip on. And this is a common mistake people make And they torture themselves on the rack of their own griefs because they just are driven to this mistake. And sometimes they stubbornly adhere to it and just keep themselves on the rack. And it's this. They they try to apply truths given only for the encouragement of believers to unbelievers. Uh, Predestination... And election are doctrines in the scripture given to encourage believers only. They're never to be preached to unbelievers saying, well, if you aren't elect, you won't get saved or, you know, who knows or why even believe or salvation is fatalistic or anything like that. Men do that, but God never does that. This is why D.L. Moody worked and came up with probably the best and most famous of illustrations to try and keep people from this mistake. He says, it's as if there is a sign above heaven's gate and those outside, the unbelievers, as they're looking at heaven's gate, those big pearly gates, they read, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you will enter into paradise. And so every unbeliever, the multitudes walk by and they see that sign, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, every once in a while, someone stops and it just strikes them and they think, Lord, and they repent and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they enter in and now they're in heaven. And when they look back at that sign, they see at the backside of that sign chosen before the foundation of the world. And they're going, I was chosen. Praise God. But how foolish it would be for those who are in heaven to go, well, look at that guy walking by. I wonder if he's elect or not. How come he's not elect? Well, who says he's not elect? Well, maybe he is. Well, maybe he's going to stop. Well, he's walking by. Well, he comes by here every day. See how foolish it would be to try and speculate on those on the other side? They have a message. Their message is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. The message of those on the other side is chosen before the foundation of the world. But you will torture yourself on the rack of your own grease if you try and take the message on the back side of the side and say, well, what about unbelievers? 
And even after I said that, somebody came up after second service and said, well, well then I said, did you see what you just did? And they said, what? I said, you, you just asked me about unbelievers in relationship to predestination election. That's the mistake. The Bible never does that. And they kind of thought, hmm, don't do it. The Bible doesn't do it. And so move on. What's the message? The gospels for unbelievers, predestination election, encouragement for believers. It's great. It's great. More foolish is the accusation that God is unjust because he doesn't save all sinners by grace. You do not want fair from God. You don't want God to be just with you. Mercy and grace are outside of justice, right? They override justice. But since they are undeserved and unearned, we can't demand them. So God is not unjust because he doesn't save as many people as you think he should. And most foolish of all are those who suppose they don't need to pray. They don't need to share the gospel. They don't need to support missions because, well, God already knows, I guess, who he's going to save. Yeah. And God commands you to be part of that process in getting those people saved by praying for them, by sharing the gospel, and by supporting missions in the church. Those are the means God uses. God's sovereignty works with means, as we just explained. You can listen to the, or get even turn out the lessons for the basic Bible doctrine series and uh, just do the lessons on the lessons on man and sin. I think there's three nights we cover that lesson and then um, salvation do that one. And you will begin to understand why God saves people the way he does. I explain in great detail. All the texts are there. You can look them up. And if that doesn't work again, God's sovereignty and salvation, which appears from 4-22-07 to 7-29-07. If you're trying to write that down, someone, what's that? Um, just call the office. We'll get them to you. Here's some other questions. Uh, before the fall, Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve, before the fall of Adam and Eve, where did Lucifer's desire to rebel against God come from if we can assume Lucifer was sinless angel in heaven and God being holy and righteous creator can't create anything outside his attributes? This is, this is like, you know, the famous question that everybody likes to ask, which no one has an answer to, but let me give you the answer. Um, first of all, Lucifer is not a good name for Satan. Lucifer is the Latin translation of star of the morning, which is used of Jesus in 2 Peter 1.19, Revelation 2.28 and 22.16. So it's not a good title really to give Satan. Uh, it does appear in Isaiah 14.12. It is used of the king of Babylon there, not Satan. If you look at the context, it's talking about the king of Babylon. Satan is never mentioned. Um, so... Satan, dragon of old, evil one, devil, work good. So the question is, we know that Satan was sinless when he was created. So how did he come about rebelling? Well, you could just lump mankind in there and Adam and Eve, right? How did Adam and Eve end up saying, well, this is, this is the basic, this maybe not be satisfying, but it's all I can give you, is in order for somebody to have a choice, there needs to be the possibility of rebellion, right? 
If we didn't have a choice, we couldn't either honor God or not honor God, obey God or disobey God. There has to be inherent in choice is a choice. So God could have made us, you know, impeccable so that we wouldn't sin and couldn't sin. And then we would just always do what was right. And we'd never learn about all those cool attributes of God, nor we have a choice. We would just be automatons. So in order to give us choice, he has to give us the possibility of disobeying. And so he creates us sinless and holy, just like he created Satan sinless and holy with the possibility of rebellion, but not making us sinners. Now, the real the real bender is this. God knew beforehand that sin would occur, that men would perish and he would save others. And so the question is, why, if God knows everything and knows everything before it happens, would he let this happen to get more glory for himself. That's a Jonathan Edwards famous quote that everybody who knows God knows that he knows all things and that he knows all things beforehand. And to know all things beforehand and to allow them to happen when you can stop them is to decree them. It's true. Um, How that fits in with God's plan, all I can say is, is God has one. When you get to heaven, you can ask him about that. I think Jesus will look at you and smile and say, your brain is not big enough. <laughs> All right. Well, we're just going to stop right there because uh, um, we've kind of run out of time. And this is where I stopped during the, the first service. And if I answered one more question in the first service, then rumors would start. I'd get hate mail all week, and uh, we're trying to avoid that. So let me pray, and uh, I think Tim's going to come up and end this with a song. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning, and we're thankful for these many good Bible questions, some of the hardest questions in Scripture. We tried to answer this morning, and really too quickly than we should have, but I just pray that all of us would ponder these things, that we would believe nothing but what your Word says, but that we would believe all that your Word says, And we wouldn't edit and paste in order to make ourselves or our mind or our system of theology comfortable. May we believe the truth and when we can't understand it, may we then live in faith that you know what is right, that you have stated what is right, and that we are responsible for our sin and you are sovereign in salvation. Father, we thank you for that. We praise you for your truth, for Christ, and for the relationship we have with our Creator. In Jesus' name, amen.